while I firmly believe that every group is different, every situation is different, every context is different, we can develop a general approach to embrace those differences, right? Systematically studying heterogeneity or differences. We never do that in policymaking. We, we focus on the, you know, which is the one that's on average gonna be the best. But I think we need to start develop the sort of the rigor of looking for differences as opposed to looking at averages. Uh, but I think, again, we, we can create uh, a, a process that embraces those differences. probably heard about nudging. So-called nudge theory, as popularized by Richard Thaler and Cass Sunstein in their best-selling 2008 book, not surprisingly called Nudge, is about how to use behavioral interventions to get people to act in their best self-interest. But what does this look like when we think about this in the context of government policy? And how, in particular, can this concept be mobilized to achieve more equitable policy outcomes? Welcome to Episode 2 of Designing for Everyone, a podcast by the Institute for Gender and the Economy, or GATE. I'm Sarah Kaplan, she, her pronouns, and a professor of strategic management at the University of Toronto's Rotman School of Management, founding director of GATE, and your podcast host. In this seven-part limited series, we're featuring a high-impact set of conversations we had in April 2023 at our Gender Analytics Possibilities Conference. In this panel session, we'll hear first from my very own colleague, Dilip Soman, who is Canada Research Chair in Behavioral Science and Economics and Director of Behavioral Economics in Action at Rotman, otherwise known as BEAR. He is also the author or editor of many books, including Managing Customer Value, The Last Mile, The Behaviorally Informed Organization, and Behavioral Science in the Wild. He is joined by Aliyah Kamlani, who is a partner at Deloitte in Government and Public Services. She is a seasoned public sector transformation partner and has spent her career working alongside senior executives and political leaders to develop business cases, engage stakeholders, develop strategic options, and manage numerous large-scale transformations across North America. Their conversation was moderated by Kate Bizanson, who is special advisor in the Office of the Prime Minister of Canada and professor of sociology and associate dean in the Faculty of Social Sciences at Brock University. And she's also a faculty research fellow at GATE. She specializes and advises in the areas of social and family policy, gender, care work, constitutional law, political economy, and federalism. Their conversation was provocative and got me thinking about all of the ways that policies can have unintended consequences for inequality in our society, and how even some small policy changes could have big impacts. So let's get right to it. So I'm really looking forward to our discussion today. So maybe I'll just start by turning to Dilip, if that's all right. Sure. <laughs> and I will, um, I, I'd like to talk to you about some of the studies that you've been, experiments that you've been involved in attempting to change behavior through nudges. I read your paper on vaccination, which was fascinating. Um, and today we're discussing achieving greater equity and inclusion in policies. Can you talk a bit about your work, some examples from policy? Tell us about nudging. Gosh, okay. Uh, so there's a lot going on in that question. There's there's nudges, there's policy. Whose policy is it? Government policy is it? Organization. So let me try and unpack that a little bit. I'm going to do that by making references to stuff that was said in the first panel. There were three. There were three things in particular that resonated with me. Uh, it turns out Dory said all those three things. Uh, one of them, she made a comment about society being built by white men and others having to fit in. And I'm just going to extend that and 
uh, Sarah knows I call a spade a spade. Uh, our organizations are built by white men for white men. And I think we need to change that. Uh, so that's one. She did say that we should go away from human-centered design. I disagree with that a little bit. I think the important question is which humans. Uh, it still needs to be human-centric, but I, I'm going to make the point about the fact that there are differences across people. There's Economists love to call it heterogeneity, uh, and we need to think about that. Uh, and then finally, uh, she spoke about incentives for dismantling colonial structures lying with the white people. Uh, I, I slightly disagree with that in an organizational context. The thing about privilege is people that have it don't know they have it. Uh, and so you can tell them as much as you want to uh, that, that it's their job to dismantle uh, systematic barriers to, to equity and inclusion, it's not going to happen. So I think it's, it's up to all of us uh, to, to try and do that. And I think the bottom line of all of these points is that in order to achieve successful behavior change, we have to change the system and not so much the people. People take a long time to change. Uh, systems are easier to change. And I know those of you who, are, who, who work with systems will tell me, well, that's, that's not true. But it is easier to change systems than, than it is easier to, uh, to change people. So uh, this whole notion of nudging, right? The, the whole notion of nudging or choice architecture uh, relies on the premise that there's a lot of power in things that we don't think there is power in. The way in which you ask a question changes the way in which people answer the question. The way in which you design a website changes the information that people seek, the way in which you design a questionnaire changes how they respond to that. And so that's the general idea of choice architecture. Can we create environments to steer people to do things that, that we want them to do? So a couple of quick examples. Uh, there is uh, Sonia Kang is in the room. She's clearly the world leader in this, in this space. But uh, one of uh, her students, Joyce He, who's now uh, a faculty member at UCLA, uh, in her thesis, asked the question, why is it that women don't, like, if, even if organizations hire women, why is it that they don't get promoted? Why don't they rise to the top? And, and one of the frictions is that in many organizations, including in academia, the onus is on the employee to ask to be promoted. Well, guess who doesn't put their hand up and say, uh, that I want to be promoted. It's, it's women, it's ethnic minorities, right? Uh, and so the question that Joyce in her thesis asked was, well, what if we changed the default? What if we made it such that at the end of every four years, you will get promoted unless you choose not to? Right? Uh, and, and of course, their work is done experimentally. Uh, they find that in, 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 uh, you know, in situations where you change the default, in fact, people are, or women are, or minorities are more likely to want to get promoted. Uh, but those are the kinds of things we need to be thinking about more. So uh, folks in the audience, if your company wants to try some of these behavioral interventions, Sonia is the person to speak to, uh, or me. Uh, but, but I think we need to institutionalize some of these ideas, change the system, and not just try and educate people. When it gets down to other things, um, you talked about nudge. Uh, nudge has an evil cousin called sludge. Um, sludge. Sludge makes it harder to do things. Sludge imposes frictions on people. So, for example, several years back, you might remember we had in this country a lovely uh, welfare program called the Canada uh, Learning Bond. $2,000 of quote-unquote free money, I'm quoting from the government advertising, uh, to low-income Canadians as long as the money is used to educate their kids. Free money. I remember being in the room when this program was announced. I remember somebody saying, who won't take it? 
right? Guess what? 84% of eligible Canadians did not access the free money. And it wasn't because they weren't aware of it. It was because they had to fill up forms and go to banks and, you know, ask for welfare. And a lot of people who were eligible for it came, were recent immigrants, they came from cultures where it wasn't kosher to go and ask for help. And so that was the friction. It wasn't, it wasn't the fact that the program was poorly designed. So, uh, so sludge affects different people differently. Right? And I think we need to be sensitive to that. So uh, where does all of this go? I, I think there's two couple of takeaways from at least my work in, in applying behavioral interventions. So one is the devil is in the detail. Situations matter. The specifics of the situation matter. That's why it's a hard policy challenge. Right? Government policy works well when you want everything or everyone to do the same thing, uh, and they're all in the same situation. Uh, here, we, we know that situations matter. And then the second point that I made, the heterogeneity word. Different people react differently to different situations. So I think those, those are two things to keep in mind. So let me just say two quick things, and then I will shut up for now. Um, what sort of policies have been successful? I, I, I think about policies as either outcome-focused policies or process or resource-focused policies. So outcome-focused, things like quotas, right? Uh, so for example, Norway, a couple of years back, talked about 40% reservation for women on corporate boards. Uh, that's an outcome-focused uh, policy. Uh, India has long had this tradition of reserving uh, seats in colleges and jobs for so-called scheduled caste, scheduled tribes, quota policy, right? Uh, but then there's resource allocation policies. And, and, and that's where there's a lot of great examples from Africa. Rwanda, for example, uh, a few years back, decided that, look, the way we're going to get rid of inequality is to channel resources to people where we feel that those people need upliftment. So if we look at gender, we look at specific uh, ethnic tribes, they've basically made policy out of redirecting resources. So maternal health, uh, contraception, uh, you know, training women to be in the workforce, things like that. And I think those are those are successful because I think they tackle the root problem of inequality uh, as opposed to the outcome based specifically. So um, just to wrap up my, my remarks for now, one, I think policies that address the root causes of in inequality are way better than the ones that just impose quotas. Uh, two, policies that match institutional structures with social structures uh, are better. What I mean by that is in, in parts of India and Africa, uh, banking is, or, or, or financial management is done at the level of the community and not the individual. All of our banking structures are only allow individual accounts, right? Uh, and so a lot of South African republics, uh, for example, have started experimenting with allowing community bank accounts uh, because then that matches the institutional structure with the social structure. Policy that is done in the context or the domain is better than policy that's just sort of an overarching one. So. Uh, figure out whether this is really an education problem and incorporate uh, gender inequity into education and into finance and into employment, as opposed to having something overarching. Uh, and then uh, finally, policy based on understanding humans as humans, as opposed to just citizens who are nameless and pieces of data, is clearly better than policy that doesn't do that. So long answer to your short question, uh, but hopefully... Uh, <laughs> There are other perspectives to that. <laughs> Thank you so much. And it really, 
in listening to you uh, reflect on those sort of policy outcomes and the policy challenges, it really puts in stark relief the challenge of understanding the kind of systematic structural barriers that people come to a policy problem with and the kinds of ways that those can be both conceptualized and approached. And I think, for example, in and I'm just going to say this because I really enjoyed your paper on vaccines. Um, the goal is greater vaccination, but the reasons that people are apprehensive about vaccination are socioeconomic, they're historical, they're based on exclusion, they're based on colonization, and so on. And it's a, it's a very different project than simply saying we want to increase the rate of vaccination. So I, I really appreciate that. Let me turn to Alia. Um, so you were co-author on a report that I really enjoyed, I recommend everyone read it, that looked at how behavioral interventions could shape policy. And I wonder maybe if you could walk us through that report, what were the biggest takeaways from your analysis? And also maybe were there any surprises? Sure. Um, and I have to say, I'm so thrilled to be back on UT campus. I'm an alumni, so very happy to be back in, in the building and in, in the uh, vicinity. So. Um, I think, you know, that at the starting point, I would say governments and policymakers are really at the heart of, you know, transforming society, our lives, et cetera. It's an obvious point, right? But uh, I think what's interesting and, and uh, about this moment in time, if you like, is it feels like there's been a lot of increased emphasis on, you know, wanting to address systemic bias, wanting to, um, you know, take a different approach and, 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 and deal with a systemic racism and bias in our institutions. So I think that's a, that's a positive. I think though at the same time, there's a need to to marry the um, the intention, the desire with with action and implementation. And and there's a there's a real moment in in time as as governments are are rapidly transforming. I think we're in a real uh, shift and and transformation of a lot of our institutions. You know, given uh, technology and and the push towards digitization and these other these other drivers that are that are uh, underpinning some of the big transformation there is uh you know we argue we talk about in the paper to to meet that moment is really about bringing an equity centered approach to the design or redesign of of, of uh, government programs and policies and and what that really requires and what we talk about is a fundamental rethink in the mindset, uh, the tools, uh, you know, the relationships you have with your stake, you know, maybe even not even calling them stakeholders, right? Your end users, uh, your your participants, uh, the, the the individuals and the humans at the end of the day who are going to benefit from a policy or service. And so it, it's, it requires a different approach to how you include them in that transformation to really achieve those broader goals of, of dealing, you know, to achieve systemic change. And so equity-centered design, really requires um, acknowledgement of biases that are inbuilt in, in institutions, right? So those are hundreds and hundreds of years old. And, and you know, the speakers previous to us, I think, spoke a lot about that and, and gave us a lot to think about in that regard. But at the very beginning, equity-centered design takes, you know, some acknowledgement of that and intentional identification of what those biases are at the beginning of any uh, problem definition or, or policy definition, because to those who are in those institutions or benefit from those institutions, those are kind of invisible to us, right? So it's really taking uh, taking that time to, to to name them and to identify them at the very beginning. I think it it also requires a lot of self reflection. And so again, you know, I think some of our speakers earlier today talked about positionality, but but really that's at the core of of the whole process. And so making sure that there's there's an opportunity for ongoing self-reflection through throughout the policy definition. You know, when you go from policy all the way through implementation of something new, uh, that has to be 
part of, of the process in terms of understanding the role you play, how you're viewed by others, how others view you, and, and how that needs to inform how you engage uh, in that definition of the problem or the solutioning that, that follows from there. So a couple of key takeaways from the book uh, or, or the, the, the paper. There, there's, you know, there's a shift in when I talk about a shift, it is really about shifting um, the way in which you engage. So it's not about, you know, stakeholder engagement. It's about co-design. We talk a lot about co-design and, and that really requires direct engagement with your end users, your design targets, right? So who are you designing for and what role do they play and, and how can you bring them way up into the, the, to the process? So they're helping you understand a problem or what you think is the problem that you're solving for in the first place. Um, and you're engaging them kind of all the way through. So in problem definition, but then also, you know, as reviewers of drafts perhaps, or um, as, as testers uh, of, of a final policy or, or, or program before you roll it out. So you can kind of continue to make sure those perspectives are, are baked in all the way through. So it's really about, um, you know, how you do it and how you do it differently, um, as well as who you include in the process. Uh, and a couple of surprises, maybe, you know, we talk about a couple of examples. I think it's the, 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 the potential, you know, positive unintended consequences of that. So, um, you know, closed captioning is a good example on Netflix, right? So Netflix rolled out closed captioning to deal with uh, those who, ha who had hearing impairment, et cetera. But really, like, I think last year they reported 40% of their um, viewers use closed captioning for a variety of other reasons, right? So, you know, it's beneficial for those who also have behavioral and cognitive um, issues in addition to kind of the obvious reasons why someone might be using that. Uh, curb cuts are another example. So, you know, how have uh, curb cuts kind of modify the, uh, the crosswalks in, in at intersections? Uh, that was really designed for, for those who are in wheelchairs, but, you know, that has additional, that has additional benefits for those who use a stroller or have additional mobility uh, requirements. So just, um, I think those are the surprising outcomes or, and the surprising benefits that come from when you are really designing, um, not just from the margins, but with the margins, uh, it can really be a benefit for all. Thank you. Um, let me turn back to you, Dilip, for a moment. Access to gender disaggregate, disaggregated data is essential in designing effective behavioral interventions for more inclusive policy. And governments collect this data through the census or labor force survey. As an expert in behavioral intervention, why are ethical and legal collection processes critical for effective policy design? And maybe what would be your recommendations to facilitate the process? Um, so so the, the data piece is interesting because, uh, as you know, I spent a year uh, in the federal system uh, working on behavioral challenges, I've never found the stat scan data useful for any behavioral intervention because it doesn't measure the right things, right? And we spoke about this in the, in the earlier panel as well. It's all about sort of just counts and numbers and frequencies. Whereas as a behavioral scientist uh, or anyone that's interested in design, we're interested in how people interact with the product. What are the frictions? Where do they stumble? Where do they get information from? That's not collected by government. So I think governments need to think about a completely different way of doing data collection. So that's one, right? So let's go back to the example I spoke about, the Canada Learning Bond. Um, I remember when the take-up rates were 16%, somebody said, oh, it must be that people aren't aware, right? And, and my rule of thumb is every time people look at data and say, it must be, that means we need more data. And we probably need different forms of data. 
right? And and so so of course somebody said it must be that people aren't aware, and so a lot of money was spent in trying to get people to be aware, and that pushed the dial from 16 to 16 and a half or something like that. Uh, no, it wasn't that they weren't aware. You had to go and spend time uh, at the you know at the centers in the communities to try and figure out why people weren't claiming this benefit. This was back in 2014. Banks would shut at six o'clock. Um, and and people who uh, who were eligible for this benefit were working two jobs. They were they had kids to look after. They couldn't get to the bank before six o'clock. So that's one. The second thing is you made them go to like a fancy bank where people dressed like you and I in suits were going to talk to them and ask them what they wanted, and they didn't want to talk about it. Uh, and so once you understood that those were the barriers and not awareness, you could then design the right interventions. We came up with a QR code system where uh, the person could just show a QR code at the bank teller. The bank teller would scan it. They would then know. And there was no need for conversation. So things like that, those are the kinds of solutions we need to be thinking about. So back to the data piece. Uh, so I, I think uh, you know one of the challenges with data and the biases in collecting data is we collect data as governments, as, as academic institutions. We never feed it back to people who actually are the source of the data, right? And so one of the things we started doing uh, in the impact unit, as well as what we do here uh, at the center, is every time we collect data, we feed it back. We say, well, here's the patterns we're seeing. Does that resonate with you? Do you want, does this make sense? Why do you think this is going on, right? Uh, and, and the stuff we learn in just that process of feeding it back to the people that we collect the data from is amazing. So I think. That's the one thing that, that we need to do a lot more of. Uh, but other than that, I mean, I'll go back to what I said before. I think it's important to gather baselines. It's important to look at trends over time. But it is important to look at heterogeneity. Uh, different people do things differently uh, during COVID vaccination. We learned that, right? I mean, so at the end of the day, the goal was to encourage people to get vaccinations. But how we did it was different across communities, across ethnic groups, across language groups, because different communities exchanged ideas and word of mouth flowed differently and there were different influences. And unless you understood that, just changing the information and translating that into 27 languages, which is great, by the way, uh, didn't help because you need to know who should do the talking. And, and that's that's the kind of data. Aliyah, that, that segues quite nicely to your work, especially on modernizing service delivery and the real challenge of this moment of knowing that we need to modernize service delivery across a whole range of areas, especially in government services, but thinking about it not just as a moment for efficiency, but as a profound rethinking of how we do services and what are underlining assumptions. So I wonder maybe if you could elaborate a little bit along the same vein. Yeah, maybe I'll talk about some kind of common, uh, the ten key tenets of, of uh, some of the, the strategies that we talk about uh, deploying in, in the paper, and then maybe some of the, the misses or the missed opportunities when you were undertaking that. Um, you know, so we talk about uh, contextualizing the problem at the very beginning. So I think I, I touched on this earlier. So really at the outset, you know, making sure you're, you're questioning uh, where your data came from, what assumptions you're making, you know, when you even define a problem and, and how do you again embed perspectives uh, of those who have lived experience, who have actual interactions with a particular challenge or problem into how you define it in the first place. And, and I think one, uh, one thing that can be a bit, uh, I think, uncomfortable at times is just is being less rigid in your, um, in your process and approach to that. And so, especially when it comes to research, I'm not an academic. I think that's probably fairly obvious to this group. So others in the room will have, you know, much more to say around research methodology. But, but you know, opening that up 
for uh, challenge and testing with uh, with a range of 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 individuals or, or or stakeholders, I think is is a relatively new idea. But I would say, you know, making sure you're not being overly rigid in your approach when you're when you're at the very outset. And so I'll give an example. Uh, we did some work with uh, Ava's Initiatives for Homeless Youth, which is an organization that um, works with young people in Toronto that are experiencing homelessness. And so, you know, there, we, we did some research and collaboration with the lead researcher and the organization to better understand the, the journey of youth through that, those programs. Um, and, and, you know, the priority through that process was making sure that all the participants in that research had, you know, psychological safety. And, and how we did that uh, was, was um, making sure that, that the, the research plan was reviewed and tested by a range of different um, lenses. So we had, you know, peer researchers, we had uh, academics, frontline staff, caseworkers, and research participants themselves actually weigh in on how we were doing the research and, and to test some of those assumptions. And then actually conducting the research to um, making sure we had peer researchers who were embedded in the organization, had the trust, had knowledge of the community uh, to do the research with us was, was another uh, key element. And, and so what that required, though, was, you know, iterating and refining the approach kind of all the way through which is a slightly different um, model, right? So that, that's, that's one element. The other, the other is around when I talked about co-design, um, you know, another key tenant in terms of how you can do things differently is, is take a, a, a different approach that we call co-design. But I think uh, embedded in that or, or common mistake or potential misstep is not fully a, uh, addressing the unique needs of your participants and underestimating the value of trust, right? So um, for example, if your research is gonna involve vulnerable populations, uh, those who have experienced, you know, violence, mental health issues, or other barriers, you, you want to be thinking about um, who's leading the engagement with them, right? And how is that engagement happening? And whether, you know, you as, a, as an actor outside of that community or outside of that stakeholder group are the right person to be, you know, having, having the conversation. And so, um, you know, things to think about in that regard would be, you know, who is the, who is the right uh, leader of those conversations? And, and, and how do you, again, continue to... Uh, assess your role in, in that dynamic and, and then, you know, question and perhaps give some space to others to help you uh, via proxies and others who have those trusted relationships to, to, to lead those, uh, to get input, to, to learn from those experiences, et cetera. And, and those might require, you know, specific um, tools and methodologies too. And so I think just being, um, being broad in your thinking in terms of when you do co-design, it's not one approach fits all necessarily. You kind of have to think about how you modulate your approach depending on who you're engaging with. And then uh, in terms of redefining impact, so I think it's it's one step to definitely state kind of an intention to want to take an equity-centered approach uh, and, and how that kind of fits into the work you're doing. I think, though, it's important at the same time to make sure you build an accountability into, into that intention, you know, so that can guide you through the, through the process. So if you're kind of starting to say, okay, we want to make sure we engage with a diverse uh, group of, of perspectives. We want to engage those with lived experiences. We want to create a particular kind of environment for those engagements. Uh, how do you kind of stay true to that through the whole process, right? And, and, and it's a journey. I think someone said earlier, it's a journey, right? We're not going to get it necessarily all right every single time, but making sure you do those checks and balances through the process, it sort of gives you a sense of where are you being successful and, and how are you getting feedback from those who you're, you're, you're working with around how it's going. Right. Like, are, we, are there blind spots that we still need to be checking through throughout the process? So that's that's one element. And, and, you know, one example of how how that can be done is, you know, you you can 
at the beginning of, 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 a, of a project or a policy or a program initiative really be working with your with your um, with your participants or those you're going to engage to align on you know what are, are what other principles that are going to guide this collective group uh, and then how do you use that as a bit of a you know have you met those principles through the process and then the other way to do it is is also to think about how you're defining outcomes so you know the outcomes uh, of of a policy or program should be uh, ideally defined and co-created with those who are going to be impacted by the outcomes right so you're you're engaging again the end user your design target in helping you to to define and measure success and then that that's another way to build in some accountability um, not just sort of at the at the traditional kind of metrics level, but at, at an outcomes person-centered level as well. And you're taking that into consideration for how you're, you're measuring the ultimate, um, ultimate product or service. Can I, so, so the point you made about the metrics, I think is key. And I think this, this came up in the first panel when they spoke about happiness and well-being versus financial well-being. Uh, is we tend to impose our sense of well-being, we as government, we as policymakers, we as academics, onto the world. Uh, people will be happier if they have more money in the bank. Well, you know what? That's not true. Uh, and it actually, I was reminded of this several years ago. I was doing research in, in China, in South India, uh, on helping people save more. I interviewed uh, an old 82-year-old uh, woman uh, who is a flower seller in the markets of Chennai. And she's been doing this for 40 years of her life. She really knows how to sell flowers. But she has the same daily routine for 40 years. She would wake up in the morning, uh, get a bath, go to the temple, offer her prayers, go to the money lender, uh, get 500 rupees uh, on a 10% per day loan, Right, so 50 rupees she has to pay back, go to the wholesale market, buy flowers, set up a stall, sell them, go back to the money lender, pay off the uh, 50 rupees. Uh, and then if she'd have a, a 100 rupees left, she would actually spend the money on buying a dosa or a leaf for her grand grandkids. And I would try to, I mean, as she was doing this you know, day after day for 40 years. And I said, if just, you know, if you just set aside those, those 100 rupees for five successive days, you don't need to go to the money lender on the sixth day. Uh, but the whole concept of saving money today for tomorrow just didn't exist in her worldview, right? As long as she went to bed at the end of the day, uh, not in the red, she was happy. And that was a metric for happiness. So this whole notion of balancing money today, holding it for tomorrow. And I think we need to truly understand what makes people happy in order to design policies. We don't spend time on that at all. We go in with assumptions and we then design policies and then they don't work and surprise, surprise, why not? Because we've measured the wrong thing. Um, we do have some audience questions that I'd like to turn to that are really in this vein. Uh, one is, how might we counter biases that favor quantitative over more qualitative relational forms of data collection and analysis? And who gets to decide what constitutes evidence-based decision-making? Do you want to say that? <laughs> um, sure. Uh, so, so, so I'll answer. So one of the things that's actually worked really well for me when I work with organizations is to ask people to make predictions on what's going to work based on the data that they have. Right? And so ex post, like when things work and things don't work, we have this something called the hindsight bias. Oh, I, I knew that was going to work. I knew that was going to be the best thing. So the, the vaccination paper that you spoke about, right? We essentially had... 10 teams of researchers that design interventions. But before we deployed them, 
we actually ask people to predict which one is going to work and, and by how much, right? Uh, and gosh, how wrong we were, right? And, and I've, I've learned that the number of times that I get it wrong is so high uh, that that's taught me not to trust a certain kind of data, right? That's taught me to go out and validate. So remember Ronald Reagan always used to say, trust but verify. I think that's kind of nice. Uh, uh, it's a nice sort of rule of thumb to use with quantitative data. So trust it, but go and check. And, and, and if it turns out that the ground reality is different, then we need different forms of data. And I think that's the approach that we should be taking. I might also add, I mean, I think it's, it's opening up sort of like what what we think the evidence actually is, right? And who's telling us what the evidence should be? And then also, you know, what should we measure against that evidence? So part of it is, you know, opening up that process too, where we are inviting other perspectives on what we should be measuring and, and also what the source data should be. And, and sometimes we don't have the right source data, I would also say, right? So it's about creating a way to then start gathering new data um, and, and being open to that. So I, I think we all agree, I think, on the importance of co-design and policy interventions, bringing equity and inclusion for stakeholders as part of the process from the very beginning. And I'd like to take a moment, maybe a few minutes, if we have time at the end, to talk about the term stakeholders. <laughs> yeah. um, but governments do tend to have councils and advisory boards and are bound by confidentiality agreements. And the ability to bring in others' opinions might actually be severely limited. So. Can we talk a bit about how we address, challenge, mix up these stalling points? Yeah, I mean, I can I can start, and then we're going to jump in. Um, you know, I think I think there's sort of like a macro view. I think through all the discussions we've already had this morning around whether those are the right structures to be engaging at all, right? So there's a there's a bigger question around like, is that the right construct to you know, be soliciting feedback from from stakeholders. And I'd love to hear your views on stakeholders. I have some too. But, um, you know, but recognizing, of course, there, there are requirements and just the, the nature of, of government um, work and, and, and the nature of, of how uh, this all operates. There's a need for confidentiality sometimes. That's just, that's part of it, right? Um, but I, I don't think that mitigates or should mitigate the ability to create feedback loops. Like, I think part of what, what, we need to do is make sure that those conversations are not in isolation with um, perspectives, again, from those who are most impacted by a policy change or a program change, et cetera. So I think there are ways to create and integrate that information through, you know, whatever existing channels need to be kind of bifurcated or separated from that uh, at the bare minimum. So I think that those perspectives can be layered in if you structure the process in, a, again, a different way. And how those those councils or those tables get information, and how that information is flowed flowed down. I I think also you know recognizing that as you're developing a policy or a program, sometimes there are moments in that value chain that need to be kept confidential, so that the business of government can continue and you can move through right from from ideation to the end. But I think uh, it doesn't mitigate your ability to again um, conduct even the the, the base uh, the base case for uh, data gathering. And learn and including the perspectives of lived experience in those conversations. So I think there's a there's a way that's kind of more from a process level in terms of how do you create these these feedback loops across the different streams of discussion that are happening. But then how do you again ground and make sure that that the conversation in the first place is is sort of grounded in the right way? Um, so I, I think there's an optimal way of doing things. There's sort of you know we can think about the right data and the right people and the right methods. 
we're not going to get to the optimal soon. Like it's not happening tomorrow, right? And, and so what's next best? I, I think the, the challenge is oftentimes we say, oh, if we can't go there, then let's just do what we're doing. But can we at least start the process of getting people who are making decisions on policies that affect subgroup X to go to subgroup X? Uh, I mean, when, I remember when I was in Ottawa, there was somebody making decisions on uh, birth registrations, and there was a committee of people, none of whom were mothers. And I'm like, well, that doesn't seem right. Uh, and they hadn't even spoken to mothers uh, or recent mothers. So I'm like, you know, go out. Like, what do what do mothers think about this? Well, we don't know, uh, but mm -hmm. we think they should think this. Uh, and have you spoken to the Service Canada reps? Well, they don't know. We don't do that. We just tell them what to do. So just this culture of going out, I think, needs to be needs to be more prevalent in, in government. And that's that's an easier thing to do. So I, I, we're starting to see some changes on that. I mean, you might have observations based on your time. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, but uh, but I think like we should stop trying to be the best, but at least let's go for second best. Anything better than where we are. And then the only thing I would add to that is just sort of rethinking to like who sits at those tables, right? So those tables may need to exist, but who's sitting at the table? How do people get to the table? And how people get to the table, for sure. And there's some some of the some of the work that I think has been really challenging, especially working for, let's just say, for example, in gender-based violence, is there's a fatigue from whatever we would call it. I don't I really don't like the term stakeholders. I just haven't come up with a better one. So I would welcome <laughs> well, I've tried to avoid using the word, but I also don't have the there's best not word a yet. so if anyone has a great yeah, idea, let us know what it is. I don't think it's I don't think it's the right term. I think we're all stakeholders. <laughs> um but there is a fatigue that comes from that kind of consultation, and there's a there's a way in which it's often a conscripted unpaid labor from people who are already exhausted from talking about the same things and having to explain their experience. So I wonder how we mitigate that if the process is to be iterative, and I think it has to be iterative. It has to be you know, you get to a midpoint and you realize that your assumptions were really wrong or the policy is only as good as the ex the people who are excluded from it. So it needs to be revisited. So perhaps we could discuss that. <laughs> I mean, so it depends, you know, one one very kind of initial thought is, is, is compensation, right? So in some cases it's about, you can't just be extracting from people their perspectives all the time, but how are you valuing, and it doesn't have to be monetary compensation, but how are you, how are you acknowledging that the value that that's bringing to the work and, and the value that they're contributing uh, in that kind of exchange of information. So it doesn't feel like you're just extracting all the time. And, and sometimes, like you said, it's a, it can be very fatiguing and depending on the context, it can just be kind of a bit re-traumatizing as well. So, so I think there's, you know, there's got to be different ways of, of how we compensate for that exchange. And sometimes it's monetary and sometimes it could be other things. So on, on this whole notion of evidence-based, I think one of the key things is we need a lot more humility in governments uh, because the current belief is that there are experts who know and, uh, and as long as we have those experts making decisions or advising, on, then we'll be okay. Uh, but like I said, I mean, a number of times, I, I like to think of myself as an expert, but the number of times I've been wrong is, is astonishing. And, and I think we need more people Same. who acknowledge that they don't <laughs> know what's happening with people from other subgroups and other ethnicities. And, and, and I think as long as we build that culture. So let's, let's even stop calling people experts. Uh, that might help. What do you recommend? <laughs>
<laughs> Let's discuss. <laughs> um, there's an audience question that's right along these lines that is, um, if I'm not in the position to gather new data, what is the best way to present outputs of analysis, policy recommendations, for example, that is based on inherently flawed data? No, go ahead. You I, I was going to say that I actually don't agree that it is difficult to gather data. So I, I think it's getting a lot easier. Maybe, again, like I said, maybe it's not the perfect data. Maybe it's not you going to the communities and observing. But there are ways in which this could be crowdsourced. And uh, if you're interested, email me. I'm happy to share some examples. But you could put up online portals, get people to contribute ideas or to contribute uh, observations. So it can be done. Uh, but, but again, I go back to the second best, I think. We shouldn't always strive for the best. I mean, I think there's there's um, like what do you do in that situation? I think is to acknowledge you know what assumptions you're making, where you think the flaws are, and and perhaps this is not always easy. It depends on the kind of situation. But if you're if you're using data to inform like a decision or a policy or a program that's rolling out, you know, can you can you test it first? So part of it is you know can you prototype something or can you test it in a smaller scale and use that as an opportunity to, to test some of the assumptions you think you know were incorrect or the data you didn't have or if you feel like the data is flawed, can you start using that testing period as a bit of a way to gather the data you think you need uh, and then you know you use that to iterate on a on a pilot or a program before you're fully scaling it out. I mean I think that's one strategy you can deploy. Yeah, the the the. The buzzword, the phrase we love to use is TLA, test, learn, adapt. Uh, so start small, uh, float a trial balloon, see if it sinks or swims, uh, update it. And I think that's the way we should be thinking about all policy instead of coming up with this grand plan that's going to be rolled out over the next five years and we've spent so much resource on that that we can't change anything. Uh, so I think that there has to be a radical shift in how we make Okay, so this raises a question that is also an audience question, which I think is great, is really about the question of trust. Um, and it's the relationship between trust and effective behavioral interventions. And I'm aware that we're all sitting here talking about the importance of design and importance of thinking about um, the ways that we can tackle structural social inequalities in policy and in, in our workplaces. And there is a very strong narrative in the popular discourse that rejects that premise entirely. And that is about a trust in institutions and that's about a trust in, uh, in, in intention. So how can institutions develop and enhance trust to strengthen effective interventions? If you start off working in areas where people want to change their behavior but can't, uh, and then you can successfully help them do that through a behavioral intervention, you will earn their trust. Uh, so it's it's all about sort of figuring out what people want to do differently and not what you want them to do differently. You'll get trust. I think it's also about transparency, right? So I think you you have to be transparent in you know what you're doing, what you're not doing, where the gaps are, and 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 being transparent. I think also builds trust. So after all of the work you've done, do you think that there are any generalizable principles when it comes to people and policy? Or do you really have to treat every context, person, group, problem, et cetera, as unique? What are the big takeaway reflections that you would like to leave? So I'll say that while I firmly believe that every group is different, every situation is different, every context is different, we can develop a general approach 
to embrace those differences, right? Systematically studying heterogeneity or differences. We never do that in policymaking. We, we focus on the, you know, which is the one that's on average going to be the best. But I think we need to start developing the, the sort of the rigor of looking for differences as opposed to looking at averages. Uh, but I think, again, we, we can create uh, a process that embraces those differences. I think it's also about like it's not one and done, right? Like you, okay, you've defined the policy and it's and it's or the program, and then you're kind of, it's it's now it's an implementation. I think it's just continuing to measure and evaluate how that's working. And again, it comes back to sort of like how are you using the the data? What data are you collecting? How are you measuring whether what you said or, or thought was the right thing to do, you know, to balance the needs and the interests of the people that you're serving, you know. It, was that the case? Is that the case? And how does that continue to be a bit more of a living, breathing uh, thing as opposed to something that you kind of reassess every 10 years, right? So I think there's a measurement and data kind of evaluation element to this that, that's not unlinked to the outcomes also that you set out at the beginning. So you should be kind of, I think, taking a, an outcomes-based approach and again, thinking, thinking carefully about how you're defining outcomes and then measuring against those over time I think is a way to to try and address sort of like you know and and, and I'm not I'm not in government but I have the privilege sometimes working alongside government. Um, you know, governments are in a tricky position, right? Because they are in a position to be defining um, policies and programs for a while, for all for everybody. So I think it's about you know how they again and for the big takeaway would be really think rethink how we're doing that in the first place, and then once we're do, once we've done it and we rolled something out, how do you how do you keep that to be something that's iterative and you're learning from all the time. Was another terrific panel discussion at our Gender Analytics Possibilities Conference. One of my biggest ahas was that getting interventions right means co-designing solutions with all stakeholders and redefining what counts as impact in the end. Thank you for listening to this special edition Gate Audio Production podcast on Designing for Everyone. If you haven't listened to them already, I hope you will check out the other six episodes in this limited series and other Gate Audio productions, including our signature podcast, Busted where we bust common myths about gender and other forms of inequality. Just search for Institute for Gender in the Economy where you get your podcasts. Of course, you can help us get the word out by liking and following the podcast and telling your friends. We are nowhere without our community of listeners. If you want to keep learning, head to our website at genderanalytics.org where you can discover our online course offerings and much more. This podcast was produced by me, Sarah Kaplan, and edited by Ian Gormley. We are grateful for support from the Rotman School's TD Management and Data Analytics Lab, who co-hosted the Gender Analytics Possibility Conference with Gate.